Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball and a co-host of the podcast. On this episode, we're going to dig into what is happening in the Senate elections this year. Kyle, I wonder if you can start by talking about the structure of the elections and how the Senate class that's up for election actually might matter. So, yeah, I mean, look, we, I think most people know that the president's party often struggles in the, in the midterm election environment. If you go all the way back to the Civil War, which also happens to kind of dovetail with the creation of our current two-party system, the Democrats and the Republicans, obviously the parties have changed a lot since then, but those are the two parties we've had um, since about the time of the Civil War. Um, but there have been 40 midterms since the Civil War. The president's party's lost ground in the House and 37 of them. Um, the Senate is a little bit of a different story. If you just go uh, after World War II, there have been 19 midterms. President's party has lost ground in the House in 17 of those midterms. Uh, but in the Senate, it's only 13 of 19. So it's a little bit different in that um, the Senate does not always uh, – the, the, the President's party is a little bit less likely to, to lose ground in the Senate than they are in the House. And part of it is that, look, I mean, only a third of the Senate is up every two years. Uh, and so the, uh, the the structure of the seats that are up matters. And so 2018 is a great example of how they can differ in that um, in 2018, the Democrats basically swept the competitive House races. They picked up about 40 seats in the House. Uh, but Republicans actually made a small net gain in the Senate. And a big part of the reason why was that um, the Democrats were defending 26 of the 35 seats being contested in the 2018 Senate elections. Many of them were vulnerable Democratic seats. You know, Democrats did pretty well, but they still ended up, you know, lo- losing a little bit of ground because they were defending so much territory. Um, this time, the Republicans are defending 21 of the 35 seats in the Senate. Um, so it was, isn't quite as stark of a disparity as 2018, but, you know, the Republicans just have more ground to defend. Uh, and there are only six. Senate seats of the 100 in which you've got a senator from one party in a state that that the other party's president, presidential candidate won in 2020, um, three on each side. Two of those three uh, 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 Biden won states that have Republican senators are up this time. None of the three Trump won Democratic state senators are up this time. So it's a little bit of a, you know, the, the map is fairly balanced, but the Republicans are defending more territory and they have some vulnerable seats of, of their own. And so, you know, I think w- one of the things that we've said and others have said is that the House is much likelier to flip to Republicans than the Senate is. And just the basic structure of the map is, is a big part of the reason why that is. What do you see as key issues shaping the election in 2022 for Senate candidates? The you know, the, the 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 I think the big thing often is just the president's approval rating. And of course, Joe Biden's numbers are, are pretty poor. They're um, basically worse than Donald Trump's were at this time four years ago. I would also say Biden has maybe had a harder hand to play and that, um, you know, inflation has become a big issue. And, um, you know, that's something that Trump didn't have to deal with. I think people were a little bit more positive about the state of the country back in 2018. Um, and again, I think some of this is just sort of sort of dumb luck for either further Trump or for, for Trump back then or or Biden um, right now. Um, so I will say that, you know, just these sort of kitchen table issues about people's negative feelings about the state of the economy, 
um, inflation, gas prices, although gas prices have gone down pretty consistently in recent weeks. Um, those are big, uh, you know, big parts of the uh, uh, of the issue matrix, I guess, for this election. Um, but you've also got other things going on. You know, abortion, of course, is a huge topic after the Dobbs decision. And I feel feel like Democrats feel like they're on sort of more solid ground talking about that issue than, than having to deal with. Um, it's some of the economic issues, uh, you know, and there are, you know, sort of different things that, that end up emerging in, uh, in, in different races. But, um, you know, again, I think the economy is usually pretty important and I think it continues to be important in this election. And, you know, the economic indicators are relatively mixed. You had a good jobs report recently, but you also have this worst inflation problem in 40 years. So, um, reasonable people could sort of disagree as to what the true state of the, the economy actually is. But I think the most important thing is that public perception of it is still pretty negative. Kyle, one of the storylines you're following this election is the difference in experience between Senate candidates. As a group, Republican Senate and gubernatorial candidates, for that matter, um, this year have less experience running for office and winning general elections than do Democratic candidates overall as a group. I wonder if you can talk about why this is the case and what impact experience might have on the election. Uh, the you know I definitely think that there's been a trend on the Republican side for going for candidates that have uh, less experience, um, and there's been some documentation of this in, in House races. That you know one of the uh, one of the great House scholars that we have, Gary Jacobson, out at uh, um, uh, uh, University of San Diego. Um, he his his classic sort of metric as a quality candidate versus a not quality candidate is. A quality candidate has held office before. And it's sort of kind of a baseline judgment. Um, and one of the developments in, you know, the Democrats dominated the House for many decades. And um, one of the things that the Republicans struggled with was to find quality candidates to run. And they eventually kind of sort of caught up. And that was part of the reason why they were finally able to start winning House majorities in the um, in the 1990s and have more often held the House uh, since then than, than the Democrats have. Um, and I think I have a decent chance to win it here in two 2022. I wrote about this, by the way, in my book, The Long Red Thread, about the House last year. So I just have to get get a little plug in, of course, for anyone who might care about that. Um, but but anyway, so, so that's just sort of like a kind of a, a baseline sort of metric is like quality candidates run has, has won before, not quality candidate has not run before. Now, of course, there are lots of great candidates who haven't run in the past and who end up winning and doing quite well. And there are people who have great credentials who fall flat on their face when they try to run for higher office. So, you know, you could you could poke holes in, in all of this. But um, Republicans, and I think Donald Trump himself is like a great example of this, They've just been preferring kind of more outsider candidates who don't have formal elected experience. It's just something that they just value. They seem to value less than Democrats. And it's not really I'm not making a judgment one way or the other about it. Um, and look, there, there are pluses and minuses about about uh, um, about office holding experience. You know, if you don't have office, you can present yourself maybe more as a fresh face. Um, you don't have a voting record that you have to defend. And, and, and you know, the, a, a lot of candidates who have you know, served in a state legislature or Congress, they do have a voting record they need to defend. So, you know, there, there are pluses and minuses. But the, the Senate, the group of Senate candidates and non-incumbents for Republicans this year is really, really green. I mean, you've got people who really not only have never held office before, but never run before, like J.D. Vance in Ohio. Blake Masters uh, in in uh, in Arizona, uh, Mehmet Oz, the TV doctor, is running in Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker, the fo former football star, running in Georgia, and you know I, I would say that 
you know, if you could give Mitch McConnell truth serum and say, hey, what do you think about your class of Senate candidates? I think he would say, well, I'm concerned about them and I would rather have more uh, credentialed folks running. And if you go back to like 2014, you know, pre-Trump uh, and also the last time Republicans flipped the Senate and you look at the Republicans who won those races, uh, many of which came against Democratic incumbents, um, they did have basic, they generally did have basic credentials. Like they were, um, there was a former governor, there were several sitting U.S. House members like Tom Cotton and Cory Gardner who, who won. You know, even if you go back to, to 2018, um, you, you know, Josh Hawley was the attorney general of Missouri when he beat uh, beat to Claire McCaskill, you know, there were others. And again, I think you've, you've seen sort of seen over time that there have been sort of more and more people without traditional experience on the Republican side. But this, this class of candidates is really, really inexperienced. I mean, probably the most credentialed person in the top races is Adam Laxalt, who served a single term as state attorney general out in Nevada, and he's uh, challenging Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. But, um, and, you know, these, a lot of the candidates have them vetted. They, have made mistakes on the trail doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to win. It's just that um, uh, I think they're kind of riskier choices than than maybe um, Republicans would, would national Republicans would ideally want in these races. And it's why the Senate sort of remains on the knife's edge, um, whereas uh, you know the House I think is, is pretty pretty clearly likelier to flip. You know, I wonder something else that um, could be challenging for those who don't have experience either running or winning and or running and especially winning is the fact that, you know, they don't have a pre-existing campaign infrastructure. You know, they, they haven't had to raise funding before. They haven't had to do all the messaging components. They haven't had to do all the pieces of the puzzle. They have not been vetted by some broad set of voters. Um, and so I wonder, you know, is there anything within that element of experience that kind of really makes it perhaps more challenging for candidates who have not run before versus an incumbent? Yeah, look, I mean, it's just like anything else. I mean, you know, I, ideally, if you're, you know, performing at some sort of high level task, you you have some sort of background in doing it. Hypothetically, it makes it it makes it easier. Now, again, there, as I mentioned, there are there are some drawbacks that we can get into about, you know, actually having elected experience. But, um, you know, I mean, I think the vetting question is a big part of it, because like for some of these candidates like like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, um, you know, they've said some stuff in their past. Uh, you know, Vance was uh, kind of known as a basically a public intellectual, wrote this, you know, uh, a famous book, Hillbilly Elegy, um, about his childhood. Uh, and, and, you know, he has been out and about talking about a lot of issues for, for several years before becoming a candidate. And I think he said some things that maybe he, you know, someone who was a a uh, more experienced candidate or who would necessarily have been planning to run for office, you know, maybe he wouldn't have said some of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the more you're at it, the fewer skeletons hypothetically are in your closet. Although sometimes, you know, things that you think might emerge during a campaign um, emerge like way later, like think about like Ralph Northam when he was governor of Virginia, you know, the, that uh, yearbook photo that emerged, you know, Northam had been around for a while. Nobody thought to look at his yearbook until, um, until he actually had, had been governor of Virginia for a little while. And, um, you know, he said something that upset someone who knew about the yearbook and then you have that story emerge. So, um, you know, there, there can always be things that, that come out later, but you might feel a little bit more confident about a candidate who's won before and won a tough race. And therefore he's had to sort of go through the, he or she has had to go through the, the, the meat grinder of, of, the, of, of, of a campaign, particularly a national campaign. 
Kyle, you've also noted a difference in candidate quality. What key differences do you see between the candidates of the different parties? And really, do candidate qualities even matter in a hyper-partisan era? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the Democratic candidates are likely to have uh, formal office holding experience. Now, you know, with the with the Senate races, the Democrats, a lot of them are incumbents. So, of course, you know, even a few of them are really new incumbents. Uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona and Raphael Warnock in Georgia. And to be fair, you know, they just won Senate race in 2020. They hadn't, you know, run for office prior to that. So it's not like that Republicans are the only ones with, with inexperienced candidates. But, you know, they do have a voting record now. Um and, uh, and that's something that they need to defend. But I'd also say that, and, and I think this will probably more true for the House than for the Senate, because I think it's harder to kind of get people to focus on the qualities of a House candidate in a, you know, in a given race, as opposed to the Senate races. There's just more money spent. There's more publicity. Um, there's more information, I think, out there about the candidates. Um, Tom Davis, the former uh, uh, um, he former Republican congressman from Virginia who uh, was a fairly big wheel in the, in the house Republican caucus when he was, when he was in, uh, when he was uh, in the house in the nineties and two thousands. Davis has this great way of talking about how house races over his time in public life have gotten more what he calls parliamentary, meaning that um, it's more just about like, what's your party label as opposed to whether you're a good incumbent or what have you. And, you know, if we were having this conversation 30, 40 years ago, a lot of the sort of political science literature, on house races focused a lot on incumbency and like delivering pork back to the district and this and that. And now a lot of it is just about like national wins and party labels. But so like we talk about candidate quality, but one of the great questions, particularly for the Senate is like, how important actually is it? Like if we're talking about how lousy these Republican candidates are, and I think many of them are, are certainly unproven and have made mistakes. But look, they might all, you know, they, they might all end up winning or, or, or the, you know, the candidate quality might not actually cost the Republicans all that much. And that would be, you know, a, a, uh, a confirmation of, of our elections becoming much more about, you know, basically what, what, what color jersey you're wearing as opposed to um, what your, what your qualifications are as a candidate um, compared to whether, you know, in a midterm environment, the public's upset and they basically just want to send a message to, to Joe Biden. Now, again, it's, you know, there are a lot of complicating factors, but that may be what ends up happening at the end of the day is that the dam breaks for Democrats in the fall and, and we're looking at a Republican House and Senate and the candidate quality stuff ultimately didn't matter that much. Kyle, you just raised the issue of voting records, and I want to ask you about party unity scores. Uh, so a party unity score is, um, you know, basically a measure of how members of Congress are voting with their own party. Um, and those scores are at an all time high. So Republicans are voting with Republicans and Democrats are voting with Democrats um, almost 100 percent of the time. There's little little crossover when it comes to legislation. How do you expect voting records will impact competitive races? And can you give us some examples? I mean, I think so. I mean, I, you know, just in talking to some Democratic operatives over the years, I think they've been, if they've been through 2010 and 2014, you know, they, they remember like, you know, the Republicans saying, hey, you know, Senator X votes 95% of the time with, with Barack Obama or, you know, 98% of the time or whatever. And if you look at the the somewhat the, the the very or somewhat vulnerable Democratic Senate incumbents and also 
um, a couple of sitting House members who are running as, as challengers in in, uh, in in Senate races, uh, Val Demings in Florida and Tim Ryan in Ohio. You know, they're all over ninety percent voting with Biden. That's according to five thirty eight's documentation. And again, like reasonable people can sort of quibble with with how fair the scores are. And of course, you know, the the only things that actually get to the floor that you vote on are things that leadership thinks will probably will pass, particularly with very small Democratic majorities in the Senate and House. But, you know, the, the votes are the votes. And we've already seen that uh, those scores uh, cited in Republican advertising. And as they try to nationalize this election and tie Democrats to, to Joe Biden, um, it becomes pretty easy to say, oh, well, this person is a, you know, is a rubber stamp for um, for Biden because they vote with him, you know, some very high percent of the time. It's actually a few, I think, that that are at a hundred percent in the five thirty eight list thing. So um, that's something that we're going to see in ads, and we'll continue to see. And um, again, I, 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 you know, I've seen you know Republicans are very successful in both twenty ten and twenty fourteen. Really, Democrats in twenty eighteen of kind of nationalizing these elections and using an, an unpopular president as a foil to um, to bring down uh, candidates uh, who, are, who are you know part of the president's party. So um, the, the voting record stuff is, is something you're going to see a lot of. On Sunday afternoon, the Senate passed the Democrats Inflation Reduction Act on a party line vote uh, with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, casting the tie-breaking vote. Uh, While the legislation itself isn't what many climate activists and progressives had hoped for, it's not an insignificant piece of legislation. It potentially gives Democrats something to show this election on climate and health care especially. Both of those things are key tenets of the party's priorities. What are your thoughts, Kyle, on the consequences of the legislation and how both parties might use it in campaigning during this election season? So history suggests that that passing big legislation generally does not help the party in power politically. Um, I guess a great example would be the Affordable Care Act in 2010. You know, that was a, I would say probably a more significantly impactful piece of legislation. Um, that's probably easier to explain and, and to understand. But you know, Republicans ran against that pretty successfully in in, in you know in, in a number of different uh, elections. But then they tried to dismantle it themselves, and that that didn't work, and it ended up being unpopular when they tried to touch health care. So um, I'm not thinking that this is probably going to have that much of an impact. I, I could definitely see. You know, Republicans have been going after it as because it, it, it the, the bill basically beefs up the the IRS. You know, the IRS isn't particularly popular, and and uh, um, Republicans trying to make hay on that. You know, whether they can or not, I don't know. But um, you know, being critical of the IRS and taxes in general it kind of fits right into the Republican messaging wheelhouse. Um, so I'm looking to see uh, that. You know, I also also think that you know it's possible that there's just been this sort of like kind of bad feeling around the White House and Biden. And, you know, there's some positive things going on now, at least from their perspective. Uh, and, you know, maybe that helps a little bit with with Biden's approval rating. You know, we're not going to see it turn net positive or anything um, because he's pretty far underwater at this point. But, you know, if he could improve his standing a little bit, um, you know, any, any little bit helps, um, um, you know, in a midterm setting. Okay. To cameo or not to cameo? I want to ask you about this, Kyle. John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania and Democratic candidate for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania, 
got a celebrity cameo from Snooki for his Republican rival, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Um, and in that video, Snooki says that she, quote, heard that he moved from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to look for a new job. And as a Jersey girl, she could not imagine why anyone would want to leave Jersey. Um, she said, I know you're away from home and you're in a new place, but Jersey will not forget you. You'll be back to, you'll be back home in Jersey soon. This is only temporary. I want to ask you, you know, two questions about this as, as a strategy and get your thoughts. One on the celebritification of political races. Um, and then should candidates even use cameos? Fetterman, and, and you have to look at this in the context of the whole campaign. So, you know, Fetterman had a had a stroke right before the primary in mid May, and Fetterman did great in his primary, but it did take him off the trail, and he's only now kind of getting back out there. And you know, we'll see how how uh, you know whether that has some sort of impact on on his campaign. So that is sort of a factor in the election. But you know, I think that that after you know Dr. Oz also won the primary, uh, you know, the Fetterman campaign had to figure out ways to sort of stay in the news and you know, come up with generate positive headlines with their candidate, you know, sideline because of this health issue. And I think they've done a pretty good job of doing that in just the sense of they're basically trolling Oz on on Twitter for, you know, this residency issue. You know, Oz has very tenuous connections to Pennsylvania. Um, is, is actually some question as to whether he even actually lives there now or whether he spends more time in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, f- uh, Oz's favorable numbers are really terrible coming out of the primary. So, um he, uh, uh, you know, the, the the using the cameo was like one bit of that of that uh, that trolling effort that they did, and you know, I think a lot of what the Fetterman stuff has has been has been pretty funny. Whether it has any effect, I really don't know, but it may also have been sort of a strategy strategy developed out of necessity in that. Um, you know, because Fetterman was, you know, has been has been sidelined here. Now, Oz has not really pressed the advantage because he's been traveling out of state and whatnot. Um, and a lot of Republicans are really concerned about his uh, about his uh, his campaign. But, uh, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, social media is so ubiquitous now. Um, and social media, I think, inherently kind of rewards being sort of, I don't know, silly or, uh, you know, just sort of having fun, basically. Um, and the Fetterman team, I think has like sort of understands that pretty clearly and it really shows in in their messaging. Kyle, it's been great talking with you about some of the key themes that are shaping up for the 2022 Senate elections. And we'll continue following this in the crystal ball and look forward to talking with you each week. Thanks, Kara. In summer 2022, the Center for Politics hosted delegations of young people from France, from countries across the Caribbean and from Iraq. I had the opportunity to join some of these delegations, and I asked participants to share about their experiences. In this episode, we hear from Ahmed, a student who participated in the Center's Global Perspectives and Democracy program, about his experience in the United States and his views on democracy in Iraq. Take a listen. Uh, Hello and greetings, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much, Kira, for having me. Uh, Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm Ahmed. I'm from Iraq. And I'm a participant of an exchange program that allowed me um, to experience coming to UVA. Uh, And please let me share uh, some of the experience by taking you through uh, my views uh, on democracy and what does democracy look like for me. Um, And secondly, how did uh, my time at UVA influenced my uh, thinking uh, on solving complex um, social and political issues? 
plus what what are the issues that I'm working on right now and trying to find solution for um, beside the ideas that um, I saw at, at USA and inspired me to take them back uh, and implement them in my country and community. And finally, what do I hope uh, for the future of Iraq? So answering the first question, what are my views uh, on democracy? Um, before answering that, I want to bring a quotation from Gandhi that says, um, I understand democracy as something that gives the weak the same chance as the strong. I I like this um, this code because it shows how democracy can empower um, all kind of people with no differences, especially those who who think that they have no voices in their country. And this is very important for countries like Iraq because we have a very diverse uh, country. And democracy for a lot of people means freedom. For me, it means freedom plus participation because democracy can never be be achieved without uh, active participation of the, of the citizens. Um, and what what influenced me and changed my mind a lot about democracy um, is interacting with uh, UVA students. Uh, we shared a lot of different thoughts and opinions about how democracy works uh, in both of, of, of our countries and how uh, the right to vote can change a lot um, of the future of the country by electing and voting for the right person and the right uh, position so that person can represent the vision of of, of the whole community. Um, the, the issue that I'm um, working on and want to solve in my country in my country is illegal immigration of youth. Uh, unfortunately, this issue doesn't has um, does not have the right spotlight on. Um, people, um, especially youth, are considering uh, going to unknown destinations um, and putting themselves in in danger, hoping for better life. And unfortunately, they have been and devoted and by the illusion that um, elections are fraud and they can never change um, uh, anything in the country. So they lost hope in rebuilding the country. Um, so me and, and a team, uh, we are working on social advocacy campaign um, that shows or tries to work on uh, showing the, the opportunities around the country and the importance of elections by organizing uh, workshops and seminars and trying to uh, give the skills to the people and uh, make them have the ability of the critical thinking. Um, so what what do I hope for the future of Iraq is uh, more leaders um, and idols being um, active uh, by um, uh, by starting initiatives and involving um, uh, our peers and other youth. Uh, me and my team already started phase one, so I can promise you that next time you will hear results from me. Um, till next time, uh, please be safe and thank you so much for your hospi hospitality and welcoming us um, at United States of America, especially UVA. Um, please be safe. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Follow us on Twitter at center4politics. 
You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to CLO3S at Virginia.edu. Until next time.